Good evening, everyone. We're going to start a new series in Daniel. So if you want to turn to page 884 in the Church Bibles, and we're reading the whole of chapter 1. So Daniel chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table, and they were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Baltashazar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men of your age? The king will then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard, whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in the whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you will speak through it to us tonight. And Lord, please, we pray, speak not just to our minds, but to our hearts. Change not just what we think, but who we are as we listen to you. 
the one who made us and who sent his son for us. In Jesus' name, amen. It's hard to overstate just how devastating the events described in the first three verses of Daniel 1 really are. Well, the first two verses particularly. Jehoiakim has been king of Judah for two and a bit years when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, comes to Jerusalem and besieges it. Now, if you know anything about siege warfare, you know it's pretty unpleasant. Uh, water, food, a cut off from the outside and a city just begins to eat itself from, from within. But then it gets worse, verse two. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. There is something worse in these verses than military defeat, and that is complete religious despoilation. Jerusalem falls into the hands of the worshippers of another god. Nebuchadnezzar breaks into the temple, steals the holy things that God had taught his people to make for worship of him, and carries them off. That in itself would be bad enough to see the treasures of the temple ransacked and looted. But Nebuchadnezzar adds insult to injury. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. To an Israelite, seeing these events, it would look as though God was totally defeated. That's the symbolism that Nebuchadnezzar's going for, isn't it? My God's bigger than your God. My king, my God has triumphed over your God. My kingdom is greater than yours and I have all your holy things and they're in the storehouse of my God in his temple. Marduk, that was his name. And the suggestion is Marduk has triumphed over Yahweh. The people have been broken and it looks as though God has been utterly defeated. And the whole book of Daniel teaches us something about living in a world where that's what seems to be going on. Where it seems as though God is at best absent and at worst broken. When Nietzsche's great cry that, or his uh, madman's great cry that God is dead, we killed him, actually seems to be true. God seems beaten. It's not just the people who have lost. 
it looks as though God himself has failed. But there's just a couple of things in this chapter that show that beyond what you can see happening in that moment of history, there is a much bigger story. Just look again at the beginning of verse two. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. It looks like Marduk's on the rampage as they Marduk is defeating Yahweh, but it is Yahweh, translated here as the Lord, who is really directing events. He hands Jehoiakim over along with the articles from the temple. God hasn't been robbed. He's given his treasures away. That's exactly what Isaiah prophesied to King Hezekiah when envoys came from uh, Babylon and um, he showed them everything in the palace and in the temple. So this is Isaiah 39, verse five. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord Almighty. The time will surely come when everything in your palace and all that your predecessors have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord, and some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood, who will be born to you will be taken away and they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. The word of the Lord you have spoken is good, Hezekiah replied, for he thought there will be peace and security in my lifetime. I just read that last verse, verse eight, so that you can understand what the heart of a king who doesn't care about his people really looks like. Well, it'll be peace and security in my lifetime. I don't care whether uh, you know, my descendants get uh, shipped off and chopped up in Babylon, as long as my life is quiet. You can understand why maybe a king like Hezekiah acts in such a way that brings this searing judgment of God on his people one in a long list of kings that lived as though God were not king. But now, complete disaster, or so it seems. The people carted off into exile. The temple ransacked. God apparently humiliated. But these verses those words at the beginning of verse two, and but the Lord delivered Jehoiakim. It's quite significant, isn't it? God is at work, God is on the move, God is doing something, even though it looks as though he has been utterly defeated. Then if you cast your eyes down to verse 21, there's something else going on, isn't there? Daniel, one of these young men carted away. We'll talk about Daniel a bit more in a minute. But Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Now, now normally in, in a kind of history, um, you, what you would think is, well, he must just be another king of Babylon. You know, Daniel lived there a long time. But Cyrus was the invading king who put an end to the entire Babylonian empire. 
Daniel may have been taken out of Jerusalem into exile in Babylon, but Babylon is not triumphant. Daniel outlasts it. And in the first year of King Cyrus, some 50 years after Nebuchadnezzar had invaded Jerusalem, the Israelites begin to be sent back and the items from the temple are sent back for the rebuilding of the city and of the temple. If you look at history in a wide enough angle, you can always see the hand of God at work. And so though in that moment, it looks as though God has been defeated, Daniel will see the defeat of Babylon and the restoration of Jerusalem. It's ultimately God's people who triumph despite all appearances to the contrary. And it is because Daniel was utterly faithful to the promises of God that he is the one who, though unlike Hezekiah, did not see peace and safety in his lifetime, saw a return of the glory to the temple, not its destruction. Daniel was willing to live a really tough life in order to enjoy the favor of God. So let's look at what's going on here. This is such a a well-known passage to many, and it's frequently one uh, preached to students beginning at university. You can see why these uh, young people without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, sounds like every student I've ever met qualified to serve in the king's palace. Uh, They're taken to learn the language and literature of the Babylonians, and and they're even doing a three-year course, after which they're to enter the king's service. Uh, And so um, these... It's the best and the brightest. This is a a, a deliberate uh, domination tactic by the king of Babylon. You take the brightest and the best from the countries you invade, and you bring them into the service of your court, uh, and you make them Babylonians. Uh, so that then their country eventually will become just another outpost of Babylon. So look what he does. Uh, he, uh, there are um, these uh, four from the tribe of Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Uh, each of their names ends with uh, a word for God, uh, El meaning God, Ayah being a, a sort of abbreviation uh, of Yahweh. So these uh, four young men whose names carry uh, this meaning of belonging to God, what happens? The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. Not so different from their original names, but with God taken out. They're being Babylonianized. They're being taught the language and the literature They're being enculturated in Babylon. They're being made into Babylonians. It's the sort of policy that if it is successful, results in the eradication of a culture and a way of life. That's what happened throughout the Roman Empire. Places were just Romanized, one after another. But there is something else going on here. Daniel decides not to defile himself with the food and uh, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah join him in that decision. 
Uh, and uh, it can be hard to understand what's going on with this decision about not eating the food from the king's table. I've heard all kinds of theories. I think my least favorite is the idea that this is uh, a, um, a biblical tract in favor of vegetarianism, after all. They only eat vegetables and drink water, and they're healthier than everyone else. Although I think the point of the text is that that's an enormous surprise to everybody. <laughs> they are being fed, or they're, they're being fed the very best. Uh, and the guards' great worry when they refuse to eat the royal food is that they will not keep up in appearance with the other young men. That's verse 13, isn't it? Who eat the royal food. And so there's a, an agreement for a test. But why? Why won't Daniel eat the food? Is it just that it's not kosher? Or maybe that it's been sacrificed to idols? It doesn't tell us that. It says he doesn't want to defile himself uh, with the food. But vegetables were sacrificed to idols every bit as much as meat was. Uh, and there's no certainty that uh, the vegetables were being treated in a kosher way. There are lots of other ways in which their life could not correspond to uh, the law as it was given to God's people. I mean, you'll note that uh, they seem to be operating a 10-day week, not resting on the Sabbath. I'm not sure it's actually about the food laws that were given to God's people uh, in uh, the first five books of the Bible. I think it's something much bigger and much deeper than that. Daniel is about to be immersed in a culture that denies the reality of the God he serves, that, that absolutely glories in the worship of Marduk and various other gods. Pretenders standing in God's place. A culture built on their worship. A culture alien to his service of God in so many ways. He would have been reading and reciting texts that said things that he would have found utterly blasphemous. It was a culture entirely hostile to the worship of Yahweh. And yet he submits to all of that. He learns the language and the literature. He engages in, if not the same practices, at least the same roles as the magicians and enchanters in the kingdom, verse 20. He's even further ahead of them when questioned about the wisdom and learning of the Babylonians. That's the other way God shows his hand, isn't it, in verse 17. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. The Babylonians would have understood that to be divination, of, of, of making contact with the gods. And yet somehow through all of this, both Daniel and the three boys remain completely faithful to Yahweh. Uh, and so in chapter three, the three friends end up being thrown into an abominably hot furnace, a furnace so hot that it kills the soldiers who cast them in. And what are they thrown in there for? Because they will not bow down and worship the statue that Nebuchadnezzar has set up. They will only worship God. Daniel, if, if anyone knows anything about Daniel, it's that he was thrown into a lion's den. Do you know why? Because he refused to stop praying to God. 
And I think this question of defilement, this decision they make about food, is all about that. It's all about their absolute determination to continue to be worshippers of the one true God, to refuse to be defiled by Babylon. They will be immersed in it, they will live in it, they will serve it even, but they won't become like it. They will remain faithful worshippers of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it is perhaps no surprise, if you know your Bible story really well, that this comes around the question of food. How did humanity fall out of relationship with God? They ate the wrong food. Why did the generation that left Egypt with Moses not enter the promised land? They grumbled about food. They said, we want to go back to Egypt where the food was delicious. We kept getting this manna. We had all the meat we could want. Eve brought us out into the desert to kill us by starving us to death. When Jesus is tempted in the New Testament, how is he tempted, first of all? With food. There's something about food. There's something about eating and providing others with food that goes absolutely right to the heart of the Bible story. And decisions around food, these sorts of decisions around food are really important. I, I don't, you know, all joking aside, I don't think there's anything wrong with being a vegetarian or a pescatarian or a you know, raging carnivore or whatever. That's not, the, that's not what I mean about making decisions about food. But actually, decisions about food often reflect in scripture, the position of your heart. So here I think is what is going on with Daniel. He is willing to serve the king of Babylon, but he is not willing to be owned by him. The king is trying to make him live like a king. That's what he's offering him. Just as the serpent offers Eve and Adam in the garden uh, a fruit that they think, well, that would be delicious if only we could have that. The king sends food and wine from his own table. I mean, can you imagine the wine served at the, at the table of the most powerful man in the world who has absolutely, you know, the sort of, modern day sort of sense of, well, you know, our, our leaders shouldn't be excessive in their spending. That is not how a sort of ancient Near Eastern potentate behaved. The, the more excessive, the more uh, obviously luxurious and wealthy his lifestyle, the more that kind of gave credence to his power and his sense of significance. And Daniel says, you can eat like me. Rather, Nebuchadnezzar says to Daniel and to his friends, you can eat like me. I will make you rich. And Daniel basically says to him, I will give you my head. I will let you teach me. I'll learn your language. I'll learn your literature. I'll become one of your wise men. But I will not give you my heart. 
I will not let you give me an identity. I will not be bought. I won't be defiled by being seduced into exile being the best thing that ever happened to me. So when he's praying, he's praying in the direction of Jerusalem, the promised land. He will live in Babylon. He will not be at home in Babylon. He will serve the king, but the king will not own him, will not seduce him, will not woo him into the worship of his gods. He won't be sucked in. He won't, as they used to say of uh, colonial officials overseas, he won't go native. And I think that's what's going on. He wants to ensure that it is God who, who has his heart. Just as Abraham said to the king of Sodom, I will not let you enrich me. And I think that's the message of Daniel chapter one. If you're living in a culture that rejects God, a culture that is full of ideas that are contrary to what God says about himself and what God says about the world, if you're living in a culture that is hostile to your faith, there may be all kinds of things that you come into contact with. But the thing to guard is your heart. The decisions that really matter are the ones that affect who you worship. Will you get sucked in to a culture that says what we offer you is the best thing that you could ever be offered? This short window of time that is your life, we will bless you. You can be rich, you can be popular, you can be famous. All those things are on offer to Daniel and to his friends. And some of it they couldn't resist in the sense that they couldn't stop it happening. They became famous in the nation, but they always put God first. And I think what the book is telling us is that it's that small decision they made that set them on that path. The small decision they made about food led to the big decisions about the furnace and the lion's den. It's in the small ways that we give our hearts up to things that are not God. So now turning my laser-like focus on KO and those of you who may be going off to university at some point soon, um, this is a good passage to think about as you're going off to study, isn't it? What are the small decisions that face you when you arrive at university that set the course of where your heart lies? That matters, doesn't it? Thinking about that. One thing a friend said to me is, I'm not necessarily offering this as advice, but just an example. He said, make sure that the first thing you tell people about yourself is that you're a Christian. 
That's what I did, and I think that was good advice for me because it just meant that I marked myself out from day one as a follower of the Lord Jesus. That was the thing that I considered to be the most interesting and most important thing about me. I was a follower of Jesus. And in doing that, there's a sort of sense of saying to myself as well as to someone else, this is what matters about me. This is my identity. We're about to eat a meal, aren't we? We're about to share food, and it's food that speaks to us of an identity, and food that speaks to us of a richness yet unseen and unexperienced, but unimaginably great. So whereas Daniel's life was shaped by a meal he did not eat, our lives can be shaped for the good by this meal that we will share together in just a moment. A meal that speaks to us of the central moment in human history being the moment at which God took flesh and blood and died for us. A meal that speaks to us of a relationship that is so precious that it was worth purchasing with the blood of the living God himself. And it's a meal in that sense that fuels our ongoing discipleship, that reminds us, that speaks to us of what Jesus has done but also points us forward to the feast that we will share with him in the new heavens and the new earth. It points forward to the wedding feast of Jesus and reminds us that we are the bride. And so we must live as those who belong to him. I'd like to invite you just to uh, take a moment and we will pray together before John leads us into the next part of the service. Father, we thank you for Daniel, Azariah, Mishael, and Azariah. We thank you that you gave them the grace to be faithful to you in a hostile world. And Lord, we long that you'd grant us that same faithfulness, that same heart that will not be defiled, that will not be seduced away from you by the empty promises of a dying world. Father, thank you that Daniel was still left standing at the end of the empire that looked like it had conquered yours. We thank you that through it all you were king. We thank you that though when Jesus hung lifeless on the cross, it looked as though evil had triumphed over you and over your son, that at that moment you were winning the greatest victory and defeating even death itself. So Father, we pray, help us to see the world with the eyes of faith and help us to order our lives in such a way that it grows that faith rather than eroding it. In Jesus' name, amen.